Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in Colorado this week. Yeah, Rocky Mountain High. Can't believe we're just blasting through these states. I know. I know. It's kind of crazy. So, Colorado. I've had many friends that have moved out there and not come back, so must be a pretty good state. Well, it is beautiful. I, I learned this week that it inspired the song America the Beautiful, actually. Okay, I could see that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Whenever I think of Colorado, I just think of John Denver. And... I think of Rocky Mountain oysters and I get disturbed. Because <laughs> if you don't know what Rocky Mountain oysters are, they're like, what is it, like bison testicles or some sort of testicles, and it's gross. Yeah. Yeah, not going to try it. Mm-mm. I'm I'm very down for trying new foods, but not not that. Mm-mm. I guess my whole question is, are how chewy are they? And that would be something I'd have to explore myself, I suppose. Probably pretty chewy. And like I, I realize that I'm pretty good at deciphering textures just from appearance, because when I had liver for the first time, it was very much. Yep, that's exactly the taste that I thought it was going to have and the texture I thought it was going to have. Gross. Thank you. Have you ever had tongue? No. Okay. I don't recommend it. I imagine that it's quite chewy because it's like it's a thick piece of muscle that you're eating. So Yeah. People say that if it's like gently braised over a long period of time, it could be delicious. But I'm also sort of like there's other parts that I'm cool with uh, consuming before the tongue. Exactly. No, thank you. This isn't fear factor. I'm not trying weird (laughs) shit. (laughs) Unless you're paying me. If you want to pay me, sure, I'll eat some cow tongue. (laughs) Well, aside from the cuisine and musicality of Colorado, I do have some additional fun facts for you. Ooh, do tell. Well, it is the 21st most populous state in the U.S. with about 5.7 million residents. Do you know what Colorado's nickname is? I don't remember. I didn't either. It's apparently called the Centennial State because it was founded in 1876. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, kind of cool. Interesting. We all know how, like, you know, Denver's Mile High City. Colorado has a very high altitude because it's in the Rockies. Apparently, over 75% of the land in the U.S. that has an altitude of 10,000 feet or higher is located in Colorado. Makes sense. We had some pretty high altitudes for Wyoming and Montana as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Colorado is uniquely situated geographically in the country. Its, so- its southwest corner borders Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah, and that's the only place in America where the corners of four states meet. That's cool. Did you know you could actually stand in multiple states at once in Colorado as well? No, but I like that idea. Yeah, it's kind of neat. I didn't know this was in existence, but where the territorial corners of the four states meet, there's a monument there, and you can actually go to the center and stand, you know, put a foot in New Mexico and a foot in Colorado, and then maybe hop over to Utah, however you want to play your hopscotch. But yeah, you can say you've stood in multiple states at the same time. That's so cool. (laughs) I need more legs so I can stand in all of them at the same time. (laughs) Like, I just picture Twister, like, I'm in four states at once. Exactly. (laughs) Left hand Colorado, right hand (laughs) Arizona. I don't know. (laughs) Exactly where my mind went. Interesting. So I know in our travels, we kind of come across what people call themselves based on what state they're from. Um, Like Texas, if you're from Texas, you're a Texan. If you're from California, you're a Californian. Well, Colorado folks have 
never really officially decided what they're called. So there's actually a little bit of discrepancy uh, among natives of the state. Sometimes they call themselves Coloradans. Sometimes they're Coloradians. And if you're super politically minded, then sometimes they will call themselves Coloradicals, which I like the best last one. Best oh, wow. Person. Okay. <laughs> For me, I kind of like Coloradans because I think it's the easiest to pronounce, but that's just my two cents. Coloradans is what I was probably going to say. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Coloradans or Coloradoans, there's actually no Coloradans who've become U.S. president or vice president. Wow. Yeah. I was like, oh, well, I guess that makes sense. It's Step one of it the up, Colorado. <laughs> TikTok, Colorado. TikTok. Um, what Colorado has produced for us, however, has been plenty of real good quality gems and diamonds, uh, especially near the aptly named Diamond Peak, which is located in northwest Colorado. Makes sense. Aside from diamonds, Colorado is also very rich in silver. After the precious metal was discovered near Leadville, Colorado in 1879, prospectors rushed on the region hoping to find their own fortunes. A lot of them did, but most of them went bust when the price of silver collapsed in the 1890s. But during that time period, Folks managed to dig up almost $80 million worth of silver in the area. Wow. See, once we get out to these states, which I lovingly call squaresies, because <laughs> everything's just a freaking square when you get out here, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I definitely think of the gold rush and you know other valuable minerals. Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially since they're located in you know the mountains. It makes a lot of sense. This I thought was pretty interesting uh, because there were so many of these precious metal booms over the course of Colorado's history. There's a lot of dead towns. In fact, there's almost as many dead towns or ghost towns as there are live towns. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, so basically people would come in to make their fortune in these discoveries of precious metals and gems, and they'd set up settlements and trading posts to support the miners or... Uh, other prospectors and then eventually they would abandon ship or abandon the town when the resources dried up as a result today in colorado there's about 500 ghost towns or ghost settlements in the state oh wow yeah pretty crazy right here's a random fact that i found um, just because it blows my mind i fly a lot between the east and west coast and i try to avoid flying in and out of denver because it is so high and it has really bad turbulence, and I just I, I'm too delicate for the turbulence. I panic every time, <laughs> even though I know it's coming. But <laughs> I hate flying, so I get it. It's like I don't mind it once I'm in the air that much, mm -hmm. but I don't like takeoff, and I really, really don't like landing at all because I've had some bad landing experiences. Then, my friend, I would suggest avoiding Denver International Airport as a connection for any of your east to west coast flights, even though it is a huge airport. The airport itself is actually 53 square miles, which basically makes it twice the size of Manhattan. So it's huge and it's a big. Oh my God. Yeah. That's See, why like, it's such a big hub. Yeah. Like all the flights when they have like layovers somewhere, it's always there or it's in the Atlanta airport. Like those are the two that I commonly see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess, I guess the flip side of that would be like, if you like roller coasters and you like excitement on your transcontinental flight, absolutely book a connection through Denver. <laughs> 
And last, we'll wrap up on some fun things to know in case you ever decide to visit Colorado. Colorado was the first state in the U.S. to legalize cannabis for medical use in 2000, industrial use, basically hemp, in 2013, and recreational use also in 2013. See, I knew they were big on the pot smoking because that's why they wanted to, like, secede at one point because there was going to be, like, north and south Colorado or east and west (laughs) Colorado or whatever it was. But then they realized how great that tax money is from recreational cannabis sales. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you can tax the shit out of that and be rich. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if smoking cannabis is not your thing, do not worry. Colorado is home to over 200 breweries, including, of course, Coors and one of my personal favorites, New Belgium. Gotta tap the Rockies, even though it mm-hmm. tastes like water. <laughs> That's fresh mountain water, Eden. <laughs> Fresh Mountain Piss is more like it. Sorry, Coors. <laughs> Please sponsor us. Coors Light, the beer of all your auntie's favorite parties. <laughs> yes. Uh, Colorado is actually third when it comes to most breweries in the nation. It is only behind California and Washington, a number of breweries, which is, makes sense a lot to me, actually. I feel like there's a lot of breweries on the West Coast. I feel like there are, too. But yeah, so that wraps up my fun facts about the great state of Colorado. Very fun. I like it. And I do have a pretty good true crime story for y'all. Okay, so my story for this week takes place in Frederick, Colorado, which is a place most people probably haven't heard of. Frederick is in Weld County and has a population of 14,513 in an area of 15.21 square miles. It's a statutory town, which I had never heard of. Have you heard of that? No, that sounds interesting. Yeah, it's um, it's a like a village in other states. And I guess okay. Colorado just wanted to feel special or something like Louisiana with its parishes instead of counties. <laughs> statutory town? Is mm-hmm. that what it was? It, yeah, statutory town. It just makes me think of statutory rape and I don't like it. <laughs> right? I feel like that's the only time anybody ever uses that word in common parlance. Exactly. Very, very exactly. That's not proper English, but yeah. (laughs) The town has its own motto, which is built on what matters. This was initially, I guess. I don't know. They didn't elaborate. They just said, this is our motto. Deal with it. They weren't very friendly. Um, (laughs) So uh, this was initially a coal mining town and was originally called McKissick after the owner of a mine. But it was renamed in 1907, which is when the town was incorporated, after landowner Frederick A. Clark, when his daughters were laying out the town site. Hmm. His daughters laid out the town site. That's interesting. Yeah, women are doing it for themselves. Um, There's not a lot to this town, and Wikipedia basically had no information on it. (laughs) It's not far from the Rocky Mountains, so if you like skiing, you can certainly do that in the surrounding area. Boulder is also not too far away. Uh, They do have a few yearly festivals, including Celtic Fest, which we have a Celtic Fest too, so I think that's pretty cool. Uh, Miner's Day, which is self-explanatory. And Chainsaws and Chuck Wagons, which is one that I had to look into a little more. So it's where people make beautiful works of art by taking some wood and a chainsaw and just going to town. Oh, I'm there for that. That sounds awesome to watch. (laughs) And the chuck wagon portion is because this this event also has a lot of food trucks. 
Cool. If you visit frederickco.gov, you can see the winners of the last contest. And the work is quite amazing. It's really cool to think someone just did that with a log and a chainsaw. Very talented people. Some other points of interest include Miner's Memorial Museum, which preserves some of the history of the town. Frederick is also home to Colorado's oldest corn maze, which is located in Anderson Farms. And there are 25 acres of trails here. Hmm. It's a lot of property to go across. You can get lost there easily. Yeah. There's a lot of cool family-owned breweries and restaurants throughout the town as well. But what brought this town into the spotlight was something much darker. The subject of my story for you today. The murder of Shanann Watts, Bella Watts, and Cece Watts. Hmm. Can't say I've heard of any of those people. Really? Okay, yeah. There was a documentary that um, I watched, and that's how I found out about her. And it was amazing. So I had to watch it again for my research this time around. Awesome. I'm excited to learn about it. Shanann Watts grew up in Aberdeen, North Carolina, but was born on January 10th, 1984 in Passaic County, New Jersey. I'm not even going to attempt her maiden name because I think it's Polish or another Eastern European country name, which, you know, they just have really tough names to pronounce and I don't want to butcher it. (laughs) No one can pronounce my last name, so we're not going to do it to them. I don't know a whole lot about her life before she was married besides that, unfortunately, but she did marry her husband, Chris Watts, back in 2012, and I don't think it was long after that they moved to Colorado. According to records, they purchased their house for almost $400,000 in 2013. It's a really nice house. It's in a development overseen by a homeowners association. Uh, I believe the house was also newly built. And it's weird because it's not the first time that a very young Shanann would be having like a brand new built house because when she was 25, I think she saved and saved and saved all her money. And she managed to have this really beautiful house built for herself, which is just incredible. I mean, I was proud of myself for buying my house all alone and by myself, but I was also a wee bit older than 25. Yeah. Ditto. Ditto. (laughs) Yeah, and then also her house was way nicer than mine. (laughs) Way nicer and way bigger. So Shanann worked at Children's Hospital Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus as a human resource specialist, but she quit that job in 2016 and became self-employed selling health and wellness products for a company called Thrive. It's one of those pyramid scheme things where you need to push a bunch of expensive crap on your friends and then you can move up the ladder until you're the one telling other people to sell expensive crap to their friends. Okay. It sounded like it. As soon as you said Thrive, I'm like, I smell an MLM. Exactly. Yes. Uh, I know because I sold Tastefully Simple for a little bit as a side hustle, so I know how it all works. I will say Tastefully Simple, although expensive, did have some really good tasty products, though. Anyway, regardless about how I feel about those types of jobs, some people are really good at being pushy and selling stuff and can make money doing it. (laughs) I was not that person. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I'd be well suited to that. No, I'm just like, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, hey, do you want to buy this stuff? No. Well, you really should buy it. Come on, just look through, look through, look through. I'm not one of those people. I'm going (laughs) to be like, okay, fine. Have a nice day. Bye. I'm not pushy in the least when it comes to selling stuff. But Shanann was that person. 
and actually got to go on fun vacations that she won through her sales for the company and stuff like that. Like she went to like out of the country places that were like really fun. Oh, damn. Yeah. Her husband worked for Anadarko Petroleum. Uh, I did watch a documentary, like I said, on Netflix for part of my research. Um, and it was the second time I watched it because I watched it sometime last year. Uh, but it has a lot of home movies in it and things like that. And it's crazy how when Chris and Shanann were first married, Chris was a little on the chunky side. And then you can see throughout the film that he just suddenly drops the weight and gets this like muscly bod. And he seemed to be like super into fitness and working out then, which is a really good mindset to get into because back when I did P90X to lose weight, I was like, I hate exercise. I hate eating healthy. This is fucking torture. But then you do it more and the more enjoyable it becomes. And I ended up loving it. And I want to get back there so bad, but it's so hard after you've stopped. I believe it. Now that I went on a second tangent, I'll get (laughs) back to my story. So Shanann and Chris had these two beautiful children together. Both of them were girls. Bella, the oldest, was born December 17th, 2013. And the little one, Celeste, or Cece as she was called, was born July 17th, 2015. Shanann, at the time of her disappearance, was also pregnant with her third child. It was going to be a boy, and she was going to name him Nico. It was cute when she actually announced her pregnancy to Chris because she recorded it and she wore a shirt that said, oops, we did it again, (laughs) which I really liked. Everything wasn't always sunshine and roses for the couple, though, and they did file for bankruptcy in 2015. They had a combined income of about $90,000 a year, but they had a car payment as well as a hefty mortgage with that nice, big, brand new house. So that did lead to a few problems for them. Neighbors in the time leading up to the disappearance also said that they could hear the two fighting a lot. So I've given you guys a little backstory. Now let's dive into what happened the day everyone realized Shanann was missing. She had been on a business trip in Arizona and came home from the airport around 1 a.m. on August 13th, 2018. She had gotten picked up and dropped home by a friend named Nicole. Nicole also worked with Shanann. Shanann had an OBGYN appointment the next day, as well as a business meeting, and she never attended either of those, which seemed weird to Nicole. Yeah, that seems super weird. Yeah. So she decided that she was going to call her and, you know, no answer. So she decided to go check on her to see if she's all right. When she got there and she rang the doorbell, no one was home. No one was answering. So Nicole immediately calls Chris to let him know that something doesn't seem right. She also calls the local police asking for a welfare check. Police show up 20 minutes to two, and the welfare check turned into something much more serious when Chris let them in the house, and neither Shanann nor the kids were there. They looked around, as Chris had no problem with this, and they found Shanann's purse in the home with her phone and keys. Her car was also still in the garage, and her wedding ring had been found on the bed. Now, this presents an interesting situation with the ring on the bed indicating maybe Shanann decided that she was taking the kids and leaving Chris for whatever reason. But then why would she leave her car and her phone and purse? Yeah, that doesn't make sense at all. Yeah, something is way too fishy in this house, and I know they're not just having tilapia for dinner. (laughs) So 
Chris was asked if he knew anything about it, but he said that he had no clue and that she and the kids were fine when he left for work that morning around 5.15 a.m. Chris also told them that the girls' security blankets were missing, which they never went anywhere without. Since they did have the cell phone there, they looked into it, and it had been turned off. When they turned it back on, there were a bunch of messages from Chris on there saying, like, where are you? Please call me, etc. Shanann was also on medication for lupus and migraines, which she took pretty much every day. Like, the migraine medication was, like, you know, per diem. It was as needed. Um... But the lupus medication she took every day, and that was also still in the house. Okay. Prior to her trip to Arizona, the couple had also took a trip back to North Carolina, which is where they were both from and still had family there. Chris wasn't there the whole time, but Shanann was there for six weeks, and I believe if I'm not mistaken, the kids were with her the whole time. While the police were still there, the one neighbor told them, that he had a camera that sees out into the street and they could look at the footage if they wanted to. So that's where everyone went. Nice. Here's where things get a little weird. The police footage from the documentary shows them watching this other footage, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Chris is just staring at his phone from what it looks like instead of watching this footage. And I know if my wife went missing... I'd want to watch the footage and see what's going on. And I know he wasn't trying to to text Shanann because the phone, like I said, was in the house. Yeah. So who is he like so concerned with when his wife and children are missing? Exactly. So it was real weird. Now, I mean, you can't make any judgments yet because the way that I deal with grief may not be the same as the way anyone else deals with grief. The footage didn't show anything and you could see Chris's truck the whole time. Um, it didn't really move, but when Chris left the room, the neighbor said to the police, Hey, he seems to be acting really strange. This guy never talks. So the fact that he's over here blabbing his mouth off makes me kind of suspicious of something. The police officer told the guy pretty much what I just said about how he's going through something and everyone reacts differently. So who knows? When Chris was being interviewed by the police, he did mention that he and Shanann weren't in a great place and admitted to the fighting and everything like that. He also told them that he thinks Shanann just up and left because she was mad at him and not feeling loved, and he feels guilty because he thinks that he caused her to leave. Okay. There was a bit of drama that occurred in North Carolina as well when they were there. Chris's family didn't seem to like Shanann much, and the feelings seemed to be pretty mutual on Shanann's side. So the drama was that the kids went to see Chris's parents, and Chris's mom had bought them some ice cream, but Cece was allergic to several foods, and this ice cream had everything in it that she was allergic to. Whoopsie. Yeah, so Shanann was not happy about that at all. The grandmother said that she didn't know, but it was like, you know, a big to-do, and she ended up kicking Shanann out of the house. Oh, God, that really escalated quickly. Oh, yeah, yeah, majorly. So through texts and through talking to friends of Shanann, they find out that there was actually a lot wrong with the marriage between Chris and Shanann. Shanann and Chris were not having sex regularly. Shanann even tried to seduce him one night by being naked when he got out of the shower, and he turned her down anyway. This sort of thing had been happening a lot lately, and Shanann actually suspected Chris of cheating on her, as I probably would too in that situation. Mm. And Shanann is like a beautiful girl, so I mean... You know, you should want to get with that. (laughs) (laughs) 
She was also mad because during the trip to North Carolina, Chris had only come over there the final week of the trip. And she would FaceTime him or call and he wasn't picking up. And she said that he made no attempt to talk to her or the kids on his own without her initiating. That was actually a big fight that they had through text then. Wow. And she's like, don't you even miss us? And he's like, of course I miss you guys. But, you know, your actions say differently. Yeah. Yeah. That's weird, too. And it's like you're going back home to, like, where you're from, too. And obviously they're seeing, like, his family and he's not there. That seems super sketch. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So this was just, like, a disaster of a marriage at this point. It's really sad because Shanann had been married once before. I don't know if Chris had, but apparently Shanann's first marriage was pretty shitty, too. There were certainly a lot of good arguments supporting the cheating theory of hers. The missed calls when the family was away, the lack of sex, the change in body type with Chris, which may sound weird to some people, but it's actually a thing. Once some guys get buff, they're like, well, I managed to get you while I was still fat, so imagine how great I can be now. Mm-hmm. Time to upgrade. Since I upgraded myself, I should upgrade my partner. Exactly. Also, fun fact. Chris was having an affair. Of course he was. He had started seeing a co-worker by the name of Nicole Kessinger. And she spells her name so weird. It's N-I-C-H-O-L. No E uh, at all. That is super weird. Yeah, I had a co-worker that spelled her name N-I-C-H-O-L-E. So the C-H doesn't throw me off that much. But I did call her Nichol just to annoy her sometimes. <laughs> like, hey, Nichol. She's like, you know, that's not my name. Like, yeah, well, then your parents should have spelled it differently. <laughs> anyway, this Nicole was interviewed by police once they learned of the affair, and she said that she didn't know that Chris and Shanann were even still together. They had started seeing each other for two months before Shanann's disappearance, and Chris had told her that they were separated. Whoops. She also says that she was not aware that Shanann was pregnant and that he had lied to her. Ooh, double whoops. Yeah, girl, that's not a whoops anymore. That is like, mm, he's hiding things from everyone, it seems. Oh, yeah. With all this information, it just made Chris look even more suspicious to police. And honestly, I don't even know if they had any other suspects or persons of interest in this case whatsoever. Plus, his name is Chris. And what have we learned so far? (laughs) Don't trust a Chris as far as you could throw him. Apparently not, because it just keeps happening. But also it makes sense, too. Like, isn't it like the first person that police will usually want to either clear it or, you know, yep. investigate further is the the spouse or partner? The spouse or partner. Absolutely. Because uh, it's nine times out of ten, if you're murdered, it's someone close to you that did it. You know the person. It's very rare for it just to be a random killing. Unless it's like a serial murder, then, you know. Mm. Okay, but yeah, it's always it's always the freaking husband um, or wife or whoever. There's more spouses that do away with their partners than any other type of crime, I think, or at least any other type of murder. Then they decide to ask Chris to take a polygraph. And we've said it before. Lie detector tests are pretty unreliable and can't even be used in court. Would you ever take a lie detector test, Nicole? I don't think I would. I think for the novelty of it, like, not if I was, like, being investigated for some crime, I'd be like, I don't think so. I'm going to pass. But I would love to do the novelty of it. And plus, I would be curious about some of those 
tricks they say that can mess up the machine. Yeah. And I'd be like, I'd just be fascinated to try that in like a very, a purely experimental way, not an actual like, sure, you can give me a lie detector. I definitely did kill that person. Like, no, thanks. That's too unreliable. Exactly. Because I mean, if you say no to the lie detector test, they're going to suspect you really hard. But then what if you're innocent and you fail it because you're nervous? Exactly. That's that's my fear. uh, My anxiety is too crazy for me to be able to ever pass one of those. So... (laughs) I could be telling you the truth and my heart will still be racing. Uh, it showed that you did not have a burger for dinner last night. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, sir. Yeah, I did check my fridge. I swear. Like, yeah. No, I would fail immediately, no matter what it was. If I did it, if I didn't do it, I would fail. So by this point, Chris had admitted to the affair and also said that before her disappearance, he had told Shanann he wanted a divorce. Well, actually, he admitted to the affair after the lie detector test. And he's like, we already know you did that. We didn't need to ask you about it. We already knew. Thanks for admitting it, though. (laughs) Uh, So the lady administering the test told him that since he's telling the truth, he has nothing to worry about. And if he was lying about anything, that he should not be here today taking this test. Well, in what should probably surprise no one at all, Chris failed the polygraph. And that's when they start really laying into him and doing a little good cop, bad cop. Chris is still saying he didn't lie even after he fails the test. The police just keep telling him that he'll feel so much better once he tells the truth because he's saying his stomach hurts. And the woman's like, well, there's a reason your stomach hurts. We hold things in and it just feels so good to get them out. I think by you taking this test, knowing you were going to fail, you just really want to get it off your chest, don't you? Wow. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So the police just keep telling him that he'll feel so much better. Uh, Chris, of course, just keeps denying and saying that he wanted Shanann and the kids just to come home and that he had nothing to do with any of this. The police then start asking if Shanann did anything to the kids, to which Chris responds with, I don't know. After police seem to plant this seed in his head, which I'm not entirely thrilled with, Chris asks to talk to his dad which is where the police, who was there in the police station. So they have some time alone. And of course, all of this is still being recorded because you're never truly alone in a police station. That's right. Chris ends up breaking down at this point to his father and he says, I don't want to protect her anymore. I don't want to protect her. He then tells this story about how emotions were running high that morning when he told her about wanting a divorce. He says that Shanann went crazy and strangled their two children in a fit of rage, which is when he lost it and strangled her to death. What? Yeah. Why didn't he stop intervene and like prevent her from killing their children? I, I, I don't know. But this is this is what he's saying. And he ends up telling the police the same thing he told his dad. And they ask him where his children's bodies are. He tells them that they are at the first work site that he went to that day but doesn't say exactly where yet. But he does tell his father that he dumped their bodies in the oil tanks on the site. That doesn't seem like something you would do if you loved your children. And uh... Exactly. Exactly. None of it adds up. So the police come back with a picture of the site, survey 319. And Chris shows them where all the bodies are hidden. Shanann's and the two kids. 
He buried Shanann and he dumped the two kids in the oil tanks. Wow. Um, there is also a sheet in the aerial view picture, which he says is what he wrapped Shanann in, which strikes me as weird. You go through the trouble of hiding these bodies and leave a sheet, which obviously has her DNA all over it. Weird. Yeah. I mean, he clearly isn't, he isn't really a criminal mastermind and this very much seems like a crime of passion. Yeah. But I mean, I I actually think it was not a crime of passion. I feel like it was premeditated, but we'll get to that. (gasps) Oh no. They then ask if he's okay with the public knowing Shanann killed the girls. And he says, yes, because I did not hurt those girls. The police aren't buying the story at all, and they say to him, it kind of looks like you killed the girls and Shanann because you wanted to start a new life with your girlfriend. After some more grilling, Chris did confess to killing the children as well, or at least this is what I believe happened, because all of my sources, as well as the documentary, seem to gloss right over this part. But somehow, between now and then, we found out that he, in fact, did kill the children, and it was not Shanann. Okay. Surprise, surprise. Uh, Yeah. So immediately once he was arrested for these murders, he was fired from his job. Like that exact like moment or day he was fired from his job. Uh, He was charged with five counts of murder in the first degree. And if you can do math, you might be wondering where the fifth one comes from because I did too. I was like, okay, so we have Shanann, we have Bella, we have Cece, and we have Nico who was not born but still counts as being murdered. So where's that fifth one coming from? Mm-hmm. Any ideas, Nicole? What, was she actually pregnant with twins? No. Oh, okay. Good thought, though. I like that one. Uh, it actually is this weird law where if you kill a child under the age of 12 and you were the parent or guardian, it counts as another murder. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Yeah. So five counts of murder in the first degree. Then he was also charged with unlawful termination of a pregnancy. And three counts of tampering with a deceased human body. Oh, man. So it's a lot of charges being brought up against him. Yeah. Chris did plead guilty to these crimes in order to avoid the death sentence and was sentenced to instead to life in prison without parole. Uh, he had five life sentences, to be exact, some of which were to be conserved, served consecutively. Hmm. Uh, weird thing about this is shortly after the death penalty was abolished in the state of Colorado. So, so basically no more he, death penalty. So he pled guilty because he didn't want to die. And then they're like, just kidding. We're going to, we're going to get rid exactly. of this in general. Well, yes. You know, I can't say I'm that overcome with uh, feeling sad for him. No, not at all. So it's weird when people talk about this case too, because there's a lot of Shanann hate going on on the internet, which just makes no sense to me. There's people who were saying that they don't think Shanann ever cared about the kids to begin with, which is completely untrue because the documentary showed a lot of home video footage, like I said, and it's clear to anyone with eyes that she loved her children. Like she really loved those kids. Mm-hmm. Other people say that even though Chris killed her, that she must have driven him to it. What the fuck? And I I get it, okay? He's hot. But if he wasn't a murderer, sure, I'd probably do him too. But guess what? Being hot doesn't mean it's not your fault when you kill people. Yeah, that's that's just a ridiculous, such a weak defense. 
well, she probably deserved to die. It's like, come on. That's like almost like being like, well, what was she wearing when she died? Yeah. Stop victim blaming. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And I don't I don't understand it. But yeah, apparently because he's hot, he gets a pass in a lot of women's eyes, I guess. Now, although the, the documentary, which is called American Murder, The Family Next Door, is very good. It does leave some things out of the story, including one of the craziest and most gruesome details of the case. This part was found out through correspondence with author Sherlyn Cadle, who approached Chris about writing a book on the case. This is what he told her about the morning of the murders. August 13th, morning of. I went to the girls' room first. Before Shanann and I had our argument, I went to Bella's room then Cece's room, and used a pillow from their bed to kill them. That's why the cause of death was smothering. After I left Cece's room, then I climbed back in bed with Shanann, and our argument ensued. After Shanann had passed, Bella and Cece woke back up. I'm not sure how they woke back up, but they did. Bella's eyes were bruised, and both girls looked like they had been through trauma. That made the act that much worse, knowing I went to their rooms first and knowing I still took their lives at the location of the batteries. That means he was driving around with these poor girls in the car with their dead mother wrapped in a sheet, and then he Mm -hmm. killed them at the dump site. I can only imagine how horrible all of that must have been. Yeah, that's pretty fucking monstrous. Oh, yeah, he's a complete monster in my eyes. From these accounts, it doesn't seem like Chris is remorseful in any way for what he did, and it's just so chilling. He seems like a grade-A narcissist to me. Like, I don't think he cares about anyone but himself. Makes sense. Through the whole documentary, once we learned about the affair, I was super suspicious of the girlfriend, too. And I felt like she knew a lot more than she was letting on. Well, it turns out that she knew about him still being married. Oh, really? And not only that, but they'd been seeing each other probably since 2017 and not just the two months in 2018 leading up to the murders. Oh, that's like, that's very suspicious. Yeah. And the documentary glossed over all of that. I was already suspicious of her from just the police interviews that I saw, but then further research showed me that everything was shady. So police found searches on her phone for new sexual positions, as well as searches for Shanann Watts dating back that far to 2017. Interesting. The sexual positions and stuff alone would not necessarily mean anything, but combined, it's pretty clear she was already screwing Chris a year before she said she was. Yeah, probably. I mean, I would assume that. Yeah. Also, she searched back in July of 2018, man I'm having affair with says he will leave his wife. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. That tells me you definitely knew he wasn't separated. Yeah. Uh, Do I think she was involved? Maybe, maybe not. There's no evidence to suggest that she was party to these crimes while they occurred. Whether or not she had knowledge of them before or after, however, that seems pretty likely to me. But hey, innocent until proven guilty. But I do have some other facts about what she was searching that leads me to believe that she knew he did it and may have even had a hand in it somehow. She also searched things like, can cops trace text messages? And she also Googled whether or not people hated Amber Fry. 
the mistress of Scott Peterson. Oh. Yep. She also deleted pictures and search history before contacting police. She was also, quote, resistant to police contacting a friend named Jim who could supposedly confirm her alibi, according to Medium.com. As far as her involvement goes, I try not to make judgments, but it's all really suspicious to me. Yeah, it is. I wonder why the documentary film crew like chose to like eliminate this part from their story. I don't know. Maybe they thought that it was more prejudicial than probative. I don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe a little bit made it too confusing to follow the overall events. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But that is the crazy story of the murder of Shanann Watts, Bella Watts, and Cece Watts. What do you think, Nicole? I mean, it's pretty fucking chilling. And now that you kind of tell the story, I don't know if it was this particular crime or a similar one, but I feel like I've heard something similar to this before, which is just very unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, it was just insane. Would you classify this as as like a family annihilator case? Absolutely, yeah, because he did kill his entire family so he could start a new life, which is pretty much textbook family annihilator. Yeah, that makes sense. My sources for this week were Wikipedia, thecrazytourist.com, fredericco.gov, American Murder, The Family Next Door, available on Netflix, medium.com, thesun.com, biography.com, meaw.com, which is spelled M-E-A-W-W, and biographied.com. Cool. Well, thanks for that story, Eden. I appreciate it. It's very disturbing. And uh, yeah. Makes me definitely not want to get married again. Well, it puts another notch in the uh, Chris, don't trust a Chris category either. Exactly. (laughs) Never trust a Chris, you guys. I'm sorry for any listeners named Chris. I really am. We're just joking. Well, half joking. Uh, (laughs) Doesn't mean we don't love you. Exactly. We love all Chris's the same, except these ones that we talk about. Exactly. We're just mildly concerned. Yes. It's just a slight red flag. (laughs) Well, I guess we could take a short break and then come back for a weird news story and then my supernatural story. And I am super excited for your supernatural story. All right. Well, chat with you guys in a minute. All righty. And we are back. We're back. I do have a fun news article for everyone. And I just had to quick do a quick fact check and make sure that it wasn't satire because it comes from someplace called comicsans.com. That's fair. That's fair. I would also check uh, that. <laughs> yeah, it was just something like, okay, now that I saw the source, let me go and check real quick and make sure it's real. But it appears to be real. And the headline is... Georgia hotel manager calls cops on woman and her granddaughter for leaving three-star review. Uh, okay. Tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. When Susan Ledger arrived for a three-night stay at the Baymont Inn and Suites in Helen, Georgia, she thought she and her six-year-old granddaughter were in for a fun weekend away. Instead, they ended up walking to a hotel, new hotel in their pajamas hours later after being escorted out of the Baymont by police. Ledger was kicked out of the Baymont after its manager, Danny Baez, called the cops on her for her review of the rundown motel. (laughs) Ledger left a review on the booking site Hotels.com, which rates hotels on a five-star scale. 
In it, she cited a few specific complaints about the Baymont. Rundown, pool's not open, open, toilet doesn't flush well. Soon thereafter, Vias was screaming at her to leave. Oh Speaking God. with Eleven Live, Ledger described how frightening the experience was for her and her granddaughter. The man is screaming at me. He was saying, you get out now. I call the police. My granddaughter's like clinging to my leg and crying so hard. This was scary. This was just horrifying. Before long, the police had arrived to escort Ledger and her granddaughter off the premises after Vias called 911. A turn of events that left Ledger mystified. The officer did help Ledger and her granddaughter find a different hotel, but they had to walk there in their pajamas. Speaking to Eleven Alive in September, Baez explained it wasn't that Ledger left the review that was the problem, but rather she chose not to call and speak with him or his staff first. What? <laughs> On a subsequent discussion with the news outlet in November, however, Baez changed his story, saying Ledger had been calling too much about her complaints. <laughs> You can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. Right? Yeah. We let her know lots of times to stop calling us. If you're not happy, change the room or leave the place. They called me at least 10, 11 times in maybe one hour. Everything is not right. Ledger denies that claim, as well as one Vias made to 911 dispatcher that she was refusing to leave the hotel. After, As for Hotels.com, the company had been of little help to Ledger. The company refused to refund her for her stay, telling her its policies do not allow for refunds. The company reserved that policy after being contacted by Eleven Alive, however, and issued Ledger a full refund two months after the incident. Ledger has issued a warning to any potential travelers staying in a hotel they found on Hotels.com, urging them to ignore the company's eye-prompting, I guess that's what that says to review hotels where their stay is still in progress. If you don't want to be walking your pajamas with your six-year-old granddaughter, seems like good advice. Yikes. Yeah, that's so shitty. But, like, there's so much going on in that story because that's the problem with, like, I I just flashed to the uh, South Park episode where everybody's, like, a Yelp critic. Yeah. And it's like, I'm a food critic. And it's like, that's, like, one side of it. And then the other side is like this manager, like probably like, yeah, people will tank your your uh, hotel and it's hard to keep afloat if that happens too much. But then it's also like you don't kick people out for giving you a shitty review. Exactly. Like you, That's... you figure out what's wrong and you fix it and then you get a five star review. Exactly. Yes. Because, I mean, you can easily turn that three star review, which isn't even that terrible of a review to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um you know, into a five-star review by how your customer service is. If you respond to the problems and accommodate them, then they're going to like you and they're going to like your hotel again and they're going to give you a better review. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I think everyone was a little bit of a jerk there, but, you yeah. know. Yeah, but it is a good, it is a cruel thumb. Like, you probably should wait until after your stay to review a place. Oh, yeah. I mean, also, that's just fair to the place, too, because maybe... Maybe day one's terrible, but day two and three are fine, you know? Exactly, exactly. You never know. Well, that was my news story. Well, thank you, Eden. It was delightful and weird, as always. Yes. Yes, it was. (laughs) So I have a pretty delightful paranormal story for you. 
I think you'll get a kick out of it. I'm ready. So today we are heading to Denver, the capital and most populous city in Colorado, and the 19th most populous city in the U.S. With a population of about 715,000 people, the city is nestled in the South Platte River Valley in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. The downtown district is immediately east of where the Cherry Creek and the South Platte River converge, and the city limits cover about 155 square miles. Nicknamed the Mile High City because of its elevation, which is exactly 5,280 feet or one mile above sea level, Denver was a boomtown founded by a group of Kansas prospectors during the Pikes Peak Gold Rush of 1858. It was named by city founder William Larimer in honor of the Kansas territorial governor, James W. Denver. Okay, makes sense. Mm -hmm. During its first two years, over 100,000 prospectors, entrepreneurs, and merchants arrived in the city, drawn by the opportunity to strike it rich in the West. Today, thanks to its geographical location, Denver's economy is really driven by storage and distribution. I didn't know this, but apparently Denver is one of the large central cities that's within 500 miles of major cities in a ton of states. We're talking as far north as Montana and Idaho, South Dakota, all over the Midwest, cities in Nebraska, Oklahoma, Texas, Arizona, even Utah, are all within 500 miles of Denver. Wow. Yeah, plus Denver is equidistant from Chicago and St. Louis and West Coast cities like L.A. and San Francisco. So it's a pretty good location if you want to have a distribution center. Yeah, very much centrally located. Mm -hmm. And because of that central location, it's also a popular choice for company headquarters. There are tons of companies that are headquartered in Denver, some that you may recognize too. Um, Among a small handful, there are Aero Electronics. Chipotle Mexican Grill. There's also several other Mexican restaurants that are headquartered, chain restaurants that are headquartered in Denver. Apparently, they love themselves some Mexican cuisine in Denver. Who doesn't? I know, right? I was like getting hungry reading the list of companies headquartered there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But aside from Mexican restaurants, uh, you can also find the headquarters for Coors Brewing, Dish Network, Frontier Airlines, Ibotta, Mrs. Fields, Red Robin, Remax, and Western Union. Wow. Yeah, it's a pretty diverse lot of companies that that have headquarters in Denver. As a major city, Denver has a lot of stuff to do as well. It has a ton of world-class museums and venues like the Denver Art Museum, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and the Denver Performing Arts Center, which is actually the second largest in the country after the Lincoln Center in New York City. Wow. Yeah. It's a great, great city to visit. Plus, if you like the outdoors, Denver could be the town for you. Because of its close proximity to the mountains and its generally sunny weather, the city's gained a reputation for being a very active outdoor-oriented city. Many Denver residents spend the weekends in the mountains where they can ski in the winter and then hike, climb, kayak, and camp in the summertime. Denver also has lots of bustling, vibrant neighborhoods like Cherry Creek, Capitol Hill, the North River Arts District, and the Golden Triangle. You can find art galleries, shopping, art walks, restaurants, bars, and clubs in many of these neighborhoods. 
in one of Denver's oldest neighborhoods, the Chessman Park neighborhood, you can find the Denver Botanical Gardens, which features North America's largest collection of plants from cold-tempered climes around the world. And you can also find our stop for the day, the eponymous Chessman Park. Never heard of it, so this should be a new one for me. Excellent, excellent. So Chessman Park is about 80 acres, but it doesn't have very clearly defined borders. It's framed by the Botanical Garden on one side, as well as another park, Congress Park, then by private residents on the remaining three sides. But don't let the tree-lined pavilions, flower gardens, and scenic views of the Rocky Mountains fool you. Chessman Park is one of the most haunted places in the city. You see, the park and the botanical gardens nearby sit on land that was one of the original cemeteries in the city. In 1859, city founding father William Larimer set aside 320 acres for a cemetery on a hill that he named Mount Prospect Cemetery. Several large plots were designated at the top of the hill for the use of the city's most wealthy and influential citizens, whereas the outer edges of the hill were reserved for, you know, potter's field, for criminals and paupers, people who couldn't form their old burial plots. Oh, no. And then you have the chunk in the middle of the hill. That's where all the middle class people got to be buried. Eventually, that section was divided up further by religion and ethnicity so that it was slightly more organized. I found a ton of different stories about who was the first person actually buried in Mount Prospect Cemetery, and each version seems to reflect a little bit of Denver's early boomtown history. One story claims that the first person interred in the cemetery was Abraham Kay, a prospector who died from a sudden lung infection in 1859. Another more colorful story says that the first interred were Hungarian immigrants, John Stoffel, and his brother-in-law, who he's accused of murdering. Oh, nice. Yep. When his crime was discovered, Stoffel was hanged at the crossroads of 10th and Cherry Street by very angry prospectors. Both he and his victim were then unceremoniously buried in the same grave. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But I think my favorite story about who was the first to be interned in Mount Prospect Cemetery is that of Jack O'Neill. While some sources list O'Neill as John Stoffel's victim, he was actually a popular professional gambler who was gunned down outside of a saloon by a different man in March of 1860. The whole event began when O'Neill, who was a popular, handsome Irishman, quarreled with a less credible, less reputable man who went by the name Rooker, as the argument progressed, O'Neill suggested that the two take it outside and settle it with Bowie knives in the back room. When, As any sensible person would do. <laughs> indeed. Draw your steel. Let's go to town. However, when Rooker refused, O'Neill questioned his, um, let's just say, manhood, as well as that of several of his family members. A few days later, Rooker shot O'Neill as he passed by the door of the same saloon. O'Neill was buried in Mount Prospect, and locals started calling the cemetery Jack O'Neill's Ranch, which I just find delightful. I'm just like, I'm imagining how this took place. Guys, guys, come on. Come on, stop now. Let's settle this like reasonable adults. Go stab each other to death out back. No, you don't want to do that? All right, fine. (laughs) 
So as more of Denver's criminal and poor were sent out to Jack O'Neill's ranch, either by violence or disease, the cemetery developed an unseemly reputation and it started to gain other nicknames like Boot Hill or the Old Boneyard. Then, in 1872, the U.S. government discovered that the cemetery was actually on federal land that it acquired as part of a 1860 treaty with the Arapaho Indians. And so the government sold the land back to the city of Denver for $200. The city took this opportunity to rebrand Mount Prospect in a way, and it changed its name to the Denver City Cemetery. It didn't do much for the actual state of the cemetery. By this time, it was still in disrepair. Headstones were toppled all over the place. Prairie dogs had started to burrow in the soil, and cattle would regularly graze among the graves. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Like, mm, not so much. <laughs> Some families and groups who had sections of the cemetery were able to maintain them, while other parts became increasingly dilapidated. It got to the point where the affluent families no longer wanted any part of the cemetery, and they started burying their dead in newer cemeteries around Denver. In 1881, a hospital for smallpox victims, nicknamed the Pest House, went up where the community garden section of the Denver Botanical Garden now stands. This hospital was a pretty brutal, awful place. It not only housed smallpox victims, but also elderly and handicapped people who were essentially sent there to die. A section of the land behind the building was used as a mass grave for all of these unfortunate hospital patients. That's really upsetting. Yeah, kind of gross. By the late 1880s, the cemetery was this blighted eyesore in what was becoming one of the most exclusive and wealthy areas of the city. This land was highly desired by local real estate developers who were sick of building around this blighted cemetery and really advocated that the city do something about it. They began to lobby for the city to put a park in place of the cemetery. Before long, Colorado Senator Henry Moore Teller persuaded the U.S. Congress to allow the old graveyard to be converted to a park. And on January 25th, 1890, Congress authorized the city of Denver could vacate the cemetery and create a park. Denver immediately announced to the families of people buried in the cemetery that they had 90 days to move the bodies to new cemeteries around the city. Since there was a very large number of Roman Catholics buried in their section of the cemetery, the city actually sold that land to the archdiocese, and it was renamed Mount Calvary Cemetery. The Chinese section of the graveyard was given over to the large population of Chinese who lived in the Hop Alley district of Denver. Most of these bodies were then removed and shipped back to China. Unfortunately for the city, it took families several years to move their loved ones' bodies from the cemetery. And after about three years, 5,000 bodies remained unclaimed, probably due to the high number of vagrants, criminals, and paupers that were interred in the cemetery. In 1893, the city took action, and they contracted with a local undertaker, E.P. McGovern, to remove the remains. McGovern was to provide a fresh coffin for each body, then transfer it to the Riverside Cemetery at a cost of $1.90 Per body. Outrageous. I'm not paying. <laughs> pretty A pretty good gig if you can get it back in the 1890s. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, McGovern's macabre work began on March 14, 1893, and it was greeted with an assorted audience of curiosity seekers and reporters who would come and go from the cemetery watching as the work progressed. It's weird because I've never heard of the place that you're talking about, but his name sounds familiar to me. McGovern. Well, there was a there's been a couple of politicians named McGovern as McGovern as well. Ah, that could be it. Who knows? For the first few days of the excavations, the transfers were very orderly. However, the unscrupulous McGovern soon found a way to make an even more money off the contract. Rather than using full-size coffins for adults, he decided to use child-size caskets, which were no. just one foot by three and a half feet long. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, that's not good. No, it is not. McGovern and his workers would then hack up the bodies and use as many as three coffins for each body as they transported it. This is so not right, but I'm imagining those space bags. Do you remember those? Yes. <laughs> Where you would just suck the air out with a vacuum cleaner and you could store more stuff. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Well, he, he should have gotten into space bags. It would have been even better. <laughs> In the haste to get this job done as quickly as possible for, before folks could figure out what they're up to, uh, the workers of McGovern ended up strewning body parts and bones literally everywhere all around the cemetery. They would open up graves and take some of the bodies, but not all of it. They wouldn't clean up the caskets after removing body parts. It was just a mess. And oh, God. this allowed for souvenir hunters and onlookers to, you know, help themselves to whatever objects might be left in the casket. Did you bury Nana with that locket? Not anymore. <laughs> I told her I would get it someday. Mm -hmm. Off her cold, dead body. On top of that, McGovern's workers were often seen looting the brass fittings and nameplates on the old coffins for extra cash as well. People are assholes. Yes, they are. And the story of McGovern's assholery, or as I like to call it, his gruesome grift, ran in the Denver Republican on March 19th, 19, sorry, on March 19th, 1893, basically five days after he started. Oh my God. Didn't take them long. <laughs> mm -mm. The headline read, The Work of Ghouls, and it described the chaotic, sloppy scene of disinterment. Quote, into the first box, some bones were cavalierly tossed by a workman. He then pulled another box to the edge of the grave. Into this he tossed one bone, some earth, and a portion of coffin. At this juncture, a man came along with a pot of paint and brushed and numbered and lettered two boxes already filled from the same single grave. John E. Wood, a representative of the health department, also came up to the grave. When he saw the third box, he asked the man in the grave what it was for. Oh, I guess there's another one in here, the gravedigger said, as he threw a shovel full of dirt into the box. <laughs> Mr. Wood looked at the grave, said, humph, and then walked away. Another shovel full of earth and some crumpled wood were then thrown into the box, and the, quote, remains were disinfected, the lid fastened, and the, quote, body of 274BH was shipped to Riverside, end quote. So, yeah. God. Nuts. Totally nuts. So this, this place story is insane. Yeah, this story breaks in the press. And of course, the city immediately cancels McGovern's contract. The city health inspector starts doing an investigation to figure out how they how this happened and how many bodies were either partially disinterred or partially moved. 
After their investigation, they realized that there's still about 2,000 bodies left in the cemetery. Although numerous graves have been exposed, other ones hadn't even been reached yet, a new contract for removing those remaining 2,000 bodies was never awarded. The next year, in 1894, the city moved forward with park construction, just grading and leveling over the graves in preparation for the park. Though there were several open graves in the park that wouldn't actually be filled until about eight years later in 1902. Finally, before the park was completed in 1907, shrubs and bushes were planted in the holes that were once filled by coffins. And the rest of the bodies were just left where they lay underneath the park. Thus, Chessman's Park was born. This is not a park that I want to play at at all. <laughs> now, I'm not sure if you remember Eden, but I mentioned that the original cemetery was like 320 acres. And yeah. That- yeah, and today Chessman's only about 80 acres. So what happened to all the remaining land? Well, some of the land was used to create neighboring Congress Park. Some of it was used for the botanical gardens. And the rest was developed for residential use. Oh, no. Do you want a haunted house? Because this is how we get haunted houses. <laughs> I know. It's so good. In fact, to this day, when there's modern construction work in Chessman Park or in the surrounding area, it's not unusual for construction to stop midway through because they found human bones. Ooh, okay. I don't like anything about that sentence. Fun. Fun times. More people need to see Poltergeist, I'm telling you. <laughs> it's funny you mention that because there is a rumor that Steven Spielberg's Poltergeist was inspired by... Chessman Park. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to confirm it, but that rumor popped up several times during my research. So we definitely have a recipe for disasters and hauntings. And not surprisingly, reports of terrifying supernatural events have been popping up since the work to, to move the graves started in 1893. Uh, the earliest story I found in multiple sources was about a man named Jim Astor, who worked moving graves for McGovern. Astor was maximizing his payday by also stealing brass from the old coffins to sell for scrap. One day, he suddenly felt an ice, icy cold pressure settle on his shoulders. He was pretty convinced that one of the dead had come to chastise him for his thievery. He was so terrified that he immediately threw down the stolen brass and his shovel and ran from the cemetery and refused to turn, return to work for McGovern. It wasn't just the workers in the cemetery, though, who had eerie encounters during the mass disinterment of bodies. People who lived in the neighborhood around the cemetery reported some truly scary experiences. They said they would see sad and confused figures walking through the streets, coming to knock on their doors and windows. They speculated that the spirits were apparently confused and having having been disturbed by the desecration of their graves. Residents also oh, reported. I would be too. Yeah, super spooky. Residents also reported hearing disembodied moaning and anguished crying from the open graves in the cemetery during the exhumation work. No, thank you. Mm-mm, mm-mm. That's a big nope. Weird happenings continue in and near the park today. A lot of people report a feeling of dread or unexplained sadness when they visit the park, whether it be daytime or nighttime. Others claim that when they lay down on the park ground, 
they feel like they're being held down by some unseen force and aren't able to get up again, which sounds just terrifying for picnic ramifications. Yeah, yeah, no thank you. Some visitors say they've heard the sounds of hundreds of whispering voices and moaning echoing around the park at night, similar to what residents reported hearing at the time the graves were being exhumed. At night, people have reported several apparitions, one being a woman who walks around singing and also several apparitions of small children playing. They seem to wander around the park, and if you encounter them, the closer you get, they will eventually vanish. Nighttime visitors to the park also report seeing strange shadows that seem to move of their own accord and misty figures that also drift through the park in confusion. Sometimes they say they will see the outline of old grave sites as well. And something that we definitely don't enjoy is the reports of people who say they hear a terrifying ghostly voices coming from fields where all of the like fields where the open graves once stood, which are now filled with bushes and trees. <laughs> oh, oh God. Yeah, super creepy. There's also a very large pavilion in Chessman Park, and folks say that if you stand on the western steps on nights when the moon is full or at least bright enough to illuminate the park, you'll actually see all the graves of the 19th century cemetery appear before you. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's creepy. Super creepy. Um, And the last thing about entities in the park, I did find one source that had a story that was very weird and spooky. It was about an entity that is nicknamed Slackjaw. Oh, no thanks. <laughs> I don't like it already. Now, there's a couple different reports of, of the same entity, but they all seem to follow this narrative. Um, eyewitnesses say that they will meet Slackjaw, who resembles a man, very thin, very pale, with a broken jaw dressed in a blood-soaked horn hospital gown oh those he encounter believe he's a, a, a living man when he approaches he usually asks them for a cigarette and then he'll ask them if the people have seen them and lift up his hospital gown and they're kind of like what do you mean seen them and he'll lift his hospital gown and show you the stab wounds and there are huge gashes in his abdomen before indicating that he was looking for the men who did this to him. When witnesses ask if he should be in the hospital or go to a hospital, Slackjaw will reply they threw him out because he had no money to pay for treatment. Then he'll disappear, and only after he suddenly poofs out of existence do they realize that they have been talking to a ghost. Oh, wow. So he's like that corporeal. That's crazy. And they say that he's frequently encountered roaming the park looking for his killers. Well, I mean, at least he's friendly. Yeah. So that's good. Perpetually bumming smokes off people in the afterlife. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it for, for the park itself. But as I mentioned, some of the original cemetery land was used to uh, create residence around the park. In the homes that surround the park, the folks who live there say they experience strange encounters. And these encounters range from shadowy figures and even poltergeist activity to the confused, wandering spirits that were reported way back by residents of the neighborhood in the 1890s. Wow. Yeah. And like I said, if all of these ghost stories about Chessman Park ring a bell, that's because you may have seen some movies that are very similar. Like we mentioned 
earlier. The poltergeist sounds like something straight out of Chessman Park. Yeah. And then one other horror movie that I know for sure is based off of living near Chessman Park is The Changeling. The Changeling was written by a man named Russell Hunter, who actually lived in a very large house on the northern edge of Chessman Park in the 1960s. And he ended up writing the script for the 1980 movie, The Changeling, which is a movie that follows a New York City composer as he relocates to Seattle and moves into a mansion that he comes to believe is haunted. Though the film is set in Seattle, there's a nice shout out to Denver because the house in the film is called The Chessman House. Oh, okay. I Mm -hmm. see what you did there. Yeah, yeah. So... And I think uh, Russell Hunter, who who wrote the movie, uh, has said that, yes, this was his inspiration of like living this this creepy ass haunted park in Denver was his inspiration for the movie The Changeling. Eden, I also found out that apparently, aside from all the spooky activity, Chespin Park is also a center for lots of great activities. A lot of people will use the park for weddings and other celebrations. The annual pride activities in that part of central Denver will often have events in Chessman Park. So, knowing everything I've just told you, would you go to Pride in the Park if it's in Chessman Park? Hell yeah, I would. I'd also get <laughs> married there because who doesn't want to get married in a haunted park? Come on, right. no brainer. That's so true. I'm so glad you said that. I'm excited to go there with you. <laughs> yeah, I would love to go there. That sounds like spooky fun. I hope that I see Slackjaw. I'll give him a cigarette. It's fine. I'll buy a special pack just for that meeting. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Does he have a preferred brand? We should find that out before we go. We should. We should. Uh, My sources for today's story were Wikipedia, Thrillist.com, Denver.org, NineNews.com, HauntedRooms.com, LegendsOfAmerica.com, MyHauntedLibrary.com, OurCommunityNow.com, and MentalFloss. Thank you, Nicole, for that story. I really enjoyed it. I would definitely hang out at that park. Just don't lay down the grass. Yeah, no. No, thank you. <laughs> well, I guess that brings us to the end of Colorado Part 1. We'll be back with Colorado Part 2 soon, where I will tell a true crime story and Eden will share a paranormal story of his choosing. In the meantime... If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can do that a number of ways. You can send us an email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also go to our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. You can stop by our social media sites. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show and on Twitter at Roadside Horror. We'd also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and Emassy for our intro and outro music. Until next time, Roadsters. Creep on, creeping on. Creepin on. on.